0: Good morning. This is Dr. Matthew Dunn, host of the Future of Email Marketing. My guest today, delighted to finally snag some of his time, is Tim Moore, CEO of Socket Labs. Tim, welcome. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you for having me. We've got a slight, um, we've got a slight Zoom audio delay. I get, to, I get to tell uh, tales on my age. I, I, I was in Australia. This is decades ago. I was in Australia my then girlfriend now now wife of many many years was here and we would get those precious phone calls and we got used to the idiot delay you know you get frustrated with the phone call and you realize oh there's this little (laughs) lag and it makes you feel a little bit out of sync and it seems like we've got a little audio lag going on (laughs) zoom right now so if i step on something my apologies
1: no worries at all, and I imagine there are a few people using Zoom at the moment, so uh, we're, pop- we're battling for bandwidth.
0: It's possible here in the uh, hopefully the downhill slope of uh, of the COVID pandemic. I think I think Zoom is one of the companies that go. Oh, well, that was kind of good for business. <laughs> uh, so Socket Labs, smarter smarter messaging infrastructure. I think is the phrase you used when we were chatting before we started recording here. Mm-hmm. Uh, do the elevator version of Socket Labs for someone who's listening.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the, the company as a whole has been around for quite some time. So it's, it's over a decade old. And really where our roots are is, is in sending infrastructure and sending infrastructure through the two kind of what I would uh, qualify as the, the key mechanisms by which email is deployed. It's either deployed on-prem, it's deployed through the cloud. Mm-hmm. Um, Socket Labs started uh, with on-prem. They eventually oh, really? evolved okay. into cloud, um, as many uh, have in, in the space. And you know that's that's really where the roots are. Is is with an email infrastructure. Now I would say where we're headed and where we think the opportunity exists within the marketplace and where the need exists within the marketplace is really taking that email infrastructure that largely hasn't undergone a lot of change over the past 10 years or so, and start to reimagine it and start to think of ways that we can make the sending pipe smarter than it is today. So take what is a relatively unsophisticated and, and somewhat commoditized sending pipe, and really turn it into something that's intelligent and something that can play nicely with some of the other advancements that have been made in the space and the marketing automation and the the personalization and the segmentation spaces and really allow those those applications and those companies to get the most out of their email
0: programs. So run that through a relatively simple example. You know, someone's sending a campaign to a thousand people. They've got permission to send to them what, what are some of the smarter things that you either do or envision doing?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I think the, the way that I would describe it right now is you have a, a few different hops that things really start to make. So if you start at the far left, you have your data intake process, which is uh, kind of becoming CDPs right now. Uh, so you have your customer data platforms where data in uh, data gets pushed from a customer data platform into a marketing automation engine. Um, And in a lot of cases, what then happens is that marketing automation engine is then using uh, what I would call relatively unsophisticated message piping Mm -hmm. to fulfill that last mile of email channel delivery. Okay. What we really want to do is we want to bring intelligence to that last mile of channel delivery. We don't want to do things that are going to be stepping on the toes of the marketing automation companies. They've all come a long ways. They're incredibly yeah. sophisticated. Yeah. The targeting that they can do, I couldn't have imagined 15 years ago when I started yeah. an email. Yeah. Um, so yeah. what we really want to do is we want to enable that. Uh, that's certainly one use case. And then I would say the second uh, case that we talk about is what you're seeing is more of a transactional use of email, uh, which is developers connecting an application to email. And what they're wanting there is they want to know that when they've connected their application to email, that email provider is going to do the best to make sure that that message gets delivered in the best way possible.
0: Right, Um, right. So you're part of, I mean, you're part of, in part, you know, the increasingly uh, fabric of APIs world, um, with, a, with a smarter, I want to send this and, <laughs> and tell me it, some more back, right? It, absolutely.
1: And, and so much of it just comes down to that, that intelligence layer. And so that intelligence layer can be powered by a variety of things. And, and what we're really interested in is we're building email intelligence that's reacting to the real-time signals that you see data uh, email is a pretty data rich signal <laughs> in general.
0: It, it, it is a data rich signal, and I was, I was hoping we'd stumble into this terrain. It is a data rich signal um, with, with some funny constraints and funny history, different, th- different than a lot of the protocols that I, I think marketers in particular are accustomed to. I mean, this is not a website we're talking about here. And uh, as we found to our shock in the last six months or so, uh, some of the signals can get interrupted in ways we didn't expect, Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. With, uh,
1: with with all of the changes on that front, I mean, there, it is a really dynamic state right now. And, yeah. and so what we really try to focus on is we try to focus on this marriage of data that, that can potentially exist within that. It's triangulating the data that you're getting in real time from mailbox providers.
0: Okay. You're getting
1: it from marketing automation companies. You're getting it from the email channel itself, the recipients themselves. Mm-hmm. And so really starting to marry up all of those signals and take actions that are going to ensure the best success for that message to be delivered, um, not not just delivered successfully, but delivered in a timely manner, um, and also delivered in an efficient manner.
0: Yeah, that you know, that matters as well. One of the things that fascinates me about talking to people in the email space: couple things. One, people who work in the email space really genuinely relish it. You know, it's like, look, I know it's been around, but this is a lot more complicated than you think. I know you send email from your desktop, sir, but. There's a lot behind it, and there's a lot of you know, room to grow and expand and do even more interesting things. And OPS, it dwarves most of the other channels in terms of actual you know, volume, intimacy of the customer, and so on, right? I mean, you've been Absolutely. in the email space a long
1: time. I, I have, yeah. So I, I started an email in, in 2005. Um, and, and I think, uh, as with many, uh, once email gets a hold of you, I, I don't think it tends to let go. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And but and you've worked on I I, I read through uh, I, I read through your um, profile on, on LinkedIn, I think you've you've worked in a variety of pieces, most of them seem to have touched on the delivery and the deliverability uh, dimensions of email. Is that fair?
1: Absolutely. And I I think if I look back at at my career over uh, what the the past 17 years now, um, I would say one thing that I've really tried to do is I've tried to get a full understanding of every angle of the email ecosystem. It's such a nuanced channel. Um, and it's such a sophisticated channel that has so much potential that still hasn't been unleashed. I agree. That I have really just tried to build the fundamental understanding of what, who are all the players in the space? How do things connect? <laughs> Where are there opportunities for things to work better than they've worked traditionally? And, yeah. uh, so I've, I've I've tried to do that through accumulating experience um, at email deliverability companies like two hundred fifty okay and return path um, yeah, marketing clouds like Oracle and yeah, uh, yeah. email security companies uh, such as Valomail.
0: yeah yeah I, I I'm curious your thoughts because you know now you' you're steering you're steering the ship right you're the guy with the, with the captain's hat on for socket labs um one of the things that struck me about the email space is It was cloud before cloud had a label to some extent, (laughs) and I don't see the big clouds having the slightest idea what to really do in the email space. I mean, Amazon's got uh, SES, and I've talked to almost nobody who uses it, for example. It, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think when you look at the,
1: the big cloud providers, um, you know, be it Azure or, or Amazon or, or Google, um, it, it's not something they fully embraced yet. I, I don't know that they quite know how to react to it. I, I think yeah. that's that probably funny? going to change. You think so? I, I do. Uh, I mean, you're, you're starting to see some of those shifts happen. Uh, SES you know, started very much as a simple email sending tool yep, yep. Uh, and it's starting to evolve a bit. You're seeing Amazon start to focus a little bit more on the automation and the UI layer with, uh, with pinpoint, I believe is the name of the product. Yeah. Um, so there, there are some movements in that space, but it's certainly not as fast as you would expect with, with those types of players.
0: Yeah. And it seems like it's more, it's, it's more difficult to, to, put a block on the diagram and says handles email because because of the complexity that you already alluded to. And, and frankly, the, um, the sort of unpredictability and nuance and is more complicated than it looks kind of thing. I mean, compute power, spin up a VM. I know that's not simple, but it's nuts, bolts, and screws for the digital age. And, and email is not just one nut and one bolt. It's a whole assembly.
1: You know, it, it it takes me back to a saying, and I, I'm I can't attribute it to any one person because I've heard it from multiple people through the years. Uh, but it, as the saying goes, uh, sending email is quite simple. Uh, sending email well is very very difficult.
0: <laughs> yeah, there you go, there you go. Well, uh, it it will be, it will be fun to you know ringside seat and watch watch it evolve. It sounds like one of the strategies that you guys have a foot is to stay, is to run smarter Um, in if if some of the simple stuff starts to get more commoditized by uh, big cloud providers, like, so what?
1: Absolutely. I I think there's always going to be a need for a smarter email sending tool. Um, And and I think a a part of what makes us good at what we do is we know our surroundings. We know where we fit within the space. Mm -hmm. We don't try to boil the ocean. Um, we don't try to do marketing automation better than a marketing automation company can do it. We yeah. don't try to do segmentation better than a CDP can do it. Yeah, uh, you know, we we really try to focus on our core competency, which is really the successful and intelligent delivery of email. So that's absolutely where we're focused moving gotcha. forward. Gotcha,
0: gotcha, gotcha. So, um, so you you fit, you know, you're you're in the more invisible piece, if you will of the of the job that an agency or an email marketer or an email marketing department is up to vital but but they're not necessarily staring at you know Socket Labs logo on a user interface all day long right
1: yeah, absolutely we're we're a bit more behind the scenes and i i do hope with uh, us really embracing the intelligent sending of email that does it, it is something that is is more highly valued by the industry um, I think it's always been kind of viewed as, as a given, uh, that if, if we do everything up to that sending of email, um, it's going to go out the door and pipe A is going to connect to pipe B and things will happen. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think what we really would like to do is we'd like to start to bring some interesting variables to that, because that's just an area that really hasn't been optimized yet. If you look at the industry as a whole, there's been optimization all around the messaging pipe, but nobody's actually optimized the messaging pipe itself. Um, you know, when you look at the optimization, uh, personalization has obviously come a long ways. You have subject line optimization, you have content optimization, send time optimization, it, everything about email can be optimized. But the one thing that nobody's really done is nobody's really figured out, are we sending email the most intelligent way? Is email being routed the most intelligent way? Are we reacting in real time to data signals that we should be reacting to? Yeah. And so that's where we really want to start to, to challenge the status quo.
0: Good. I'm glad to hear that. I'd actually have to say my reaction to the list you just went through is, I feel like, I feel like the actual content piece of email, is still a poor cousin, at best. You know, companies will spend a zillion dollars on the tool that's going to send campaigns, and then they send ugly stuff, irrelevant stuff. And don't really know what's inside the envelope at a certain point, I was challenged someone the other day on a call they were talking about a you know a case study and I'm like, so did you like do you really understand the you know the content that made the difference and the answer honestly is no there's no there's no real measures and metrics and uh rigor to that piece of it, which you know baffles and frustrates me to believe that aside there's definitely room for smart delivery so it's del- it's cool to hear where you're headed. I looked at a stat on this on the um on the Socket Labs website, you, you touch, what is it, 600 million messages a day? Well, it's, it's
1: data points. So uh, data when points. we're looking at uh, all the data points that we're ingesting, I mean, that, that just speaks to some of the data rich signals that yeah. exist within email. And so what we really wanna do is we wanna make sure those data signals don't go unused. I, I think in, in too many cases, uh, we aren't fully leveraging the ability to intelligently send through interpreting data signals intelligently um, sure. and it's it's almost all this email data I don't want to say goes to waste but it certainly is suboptimally used
0: yeah it goes to waste is good so what are, <laughs> what are what are what are at least a couple of the you know layman or uh, business person would get it examples of signals not necessarily used optimally
1: yeah so I, I would say certainly the the way that so let's let's take a multi-tenant sender. So let's take somebody who sends on behalf of others. So a marketing automation company, for okay. example. Okay. Uh, there's some really interesting things that can be done with how you uh, pool IPs and how you segment customers and how you make sure that a bad customer doesn't negatively impact good customers. Uh, and most importantly, how do you identify uh, quickly and, and remediate a bad customer? Okay. Uh, so I, I think there's a ton of opportunity when, within that space. Um, You know, one of the things when you talk about somebody connecting a developer, connecting an application to email, Mm -hmm. I think one of the areas that we really want to start to focus on is getting to those folks early and, and installing some of those deliverability principles early. Because it's really easy, well, it's, it's, I should say it's easier to do things right from the start than it is to go back and fix something that's already yeah. broken. Yeah. Um, so we, we really want to install some of those deliverability principles, and some of them are done through people and guidance, and some of them are done through product and intelligence. Mm-hmm. But we want to make sure that those values are graphs really early in the process. Uh, so people are, are off on the right foot. Um, you know, before before they do run into issues. And so they're sending in the right way, uh, right off the bat. Uh, and I, I think that's something the industry struggled with a little bit. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't think deliverability principles and concepts and, and intelligent sending strategies happen early enough in the life cycle of, of people that are using email. Uh, I, I think too often it's just, it's, it's too expensive or it's too, the solutions are too over-engineered or, um, you know, the the offerings are overkill. I, I don't think there's a great path for somebody who's just getting to that size where deliverability really should matter. Hmm. Uh, I don't think there's a great entry into that world for them. And so that's one of the things that we really want to focus on is not just catering to the largest, most sophisticated centers in the world. That's absolutely what a lot of our next gen platforms are going to be designed to do, but also really starting to focus on those folks that don't have a deliverability resource internally and, and they don't need a full-time deliverability resource. But those companies that we can help them by intelligently sending their email, we can help eliminate the need for that full-time role and start to focus on programmatically solving some of that and, and educating them.
0: So rough analogy, um, there was a time when a, a business of fill in the blank size would, would tee up the, we're going to replace our website, we're going to put a new website in place. And they they merrily jump into what the page looked like in the design, and not really pay attention to search engine optimization until somewhere somewhere down the line. Now, honestly, most of the tools that grapple with websites have, like, look, you got to consider this, this, and this in terms of the SEO dimensions of this site from the very beginning, um, and it, it it you know it starts to build it in because it's hard to recover. It's hard to recover your, uh, your, you know, your search engine ranking if you mess that up. Um, and I'm using that as a rough analogy to deliverability. Fair?
1: It, absolutely. And when I, when I think about deliverability as a whole and, and just email delivery, um, what you really want is you want your infrastructure provider to get you the deliverability that you deserve. Um, you, you don't want to be shot in the foot by by things that either you or they are doing. Um, so you, you want them to get the deliverability that you deserve or delivery. Um, I would use both in this case because I think both are applicable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then what you really want to do in the long term is you want to always deserve better. And right. and so that's really what we want to focus on. And and I think there's a nice uh, way you can do that through a combination of uh, services and expertise, but also through technology that does a lot of that for you. Right.
0: Right, right. And and stuff that uh, stuff that even a good size email shop is probably not ready to handle themselves because there's a considerable amount of expertise, technology, data involved in doing that. You know, there's a there's a we're, I'm, I'm guilty of inside baseball as much as anybody else. I mean, when we talk about deliverability, I think we, we, we both probably have the working assumption about how, how precarious that is and, and how damaging it can be. If you, you know, if you screw it up, even in even inadvertently, like why are half of our emails not actually getting to people? Well, it's a deliverability issue. And if you didn't realize that it's a big deal, it's a big deal. <laughs> and it's a black art.
1: It, you know, it, it's such an interesting combination of art and science that, that exists behind deliverability. Um, yeah. it, it's it. That's what makes email such a nuanced channel. And that's what makes it so exciting, too. Yeah. Um, and when you look at the industry as as a whole, there's there's certainly a, a greater demand for deliverability expertise than the supply can permit right now. Interesting. Yeah,
0: yeah. I suppose that's uh, that's fair. Um, and it's it's you know since we're in in a channel that still grows like lickety split every year um, and and gets more complicated. You were referencing just how dynamic the space is right now. Uh, I don't see that need receding anytime soon. And it doesn't seem to me, I'd be curious your reaction to this. It doesn't seem to me that um, that it's at the level where you can bake the art entirely into the API and make it a, you know, make it just a science. Like there's 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 some people smarts and problem solving and very complex, this relates to that, involved in, in sorting out deliverability issues, yeah? It- Absolutely. And
1: and that's an area of focus for us um, because we do recognize that there is, uh, there is a supply issue when it comes to deliverability expertise. And so what we really want to do is we want to focus on programmatically solving all the things that we can. That's going to get us some portion of the way there, um, but it doesn't get us all the way there. There will always be a need for that human deliverability expert. And so what we want to become is a very friendly tool to them. Um, Um, You know, we want to give them the data that they're going to need to make intelligent decisions and recommendations to their customers or Mm -hmm. their companies. Uh, And and we want to do a lot of the more uh, we want to do some of the table stakes stuff for them that really isn't being done
0: yet. Gotcha. Gotcha. And I'm going to guess have have the, you know, hooks, data, affordances, tool sets in place to make the person who is working on the deliverability issue uh, better equipped to do the jobs like uh, a lot of tech stacks didn't formerly didn't have security mindset built in and now increasingly okay, you kind of have to why cuz you kind of have to so uh, a, a a different analogy for deliverability perhaps
1: it, absolutely, and it's something that we certainly want to do. It's it's near and dear to our hearts. If you look at our, our senior leadership team, almost everyone has deliverability experience. Nice. Um, it's it's a deliverability company at its at its at
0: core. Its, at its core, <laughs> cool. Now, Socket Labs is a company. Um, I think you're in Colorado, correct? That's correct. Yes, Colorado native. Man, one of the few <laughs> me too. <laughs> oh how about that Don't live there now, but um, yeah yeah uh, do, if you do, you do you know where Sawatch is that's always my test I, I don't no you give were, me another you town know where near Salida it. is Yes Mo, Monte Vista yep in between those two <laughs> okay, perfect. population 500 <laughs> lived there when I was a, when I was a wee a, a wee lad um, but yeah I love love Colorado. looks like you've spent most of much of your career in your home state, which is awesome. You know,
1: I've I've never left, uh, wow. at least not in person.
0: Yeah. Uh, I certainly have virtually. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And is is Saga Labs itself virtual in terms of footprint? And where where the peop your people are?
1: Uh, we are. Our roots were uh, just outside of Philadelphia, um, and uh, kind of post pandemic, uh, the the majority of our headcount has been distributed, and uh, that's uh, probably the way we'll always do things now.
0: That's right. And you 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 took over this 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 role in the company. Uh, Within the pandemic time period, didn't you? It was, yeah, yeah. So it was. Uh, I, I guess maybe if, if midpoint. Yeah, midpoint. <laughs> or, or wow. So. What uh, <laughs> what would it feel like building a you know building a plane like on the on the fly like that? You know, it was uh, it was more comfortable than I would have imagined it would have been,
1: okay. uh, and I think a large part of that was because it, it was. I when I got there it was it was November uh, so we we had been a little bit into the pandemic mm-hmm. and I think I missed a lot of the learning curve that came with a lot of folks working remotely for the first time okay. and so yeah, yeah. I I got to join at a little bit of a better stage uh, where I think everybody ha- had grown pretty accustomed uh, mm-hmm. almost unusually accustomed to to being remote. Yeah. um so that part was interesting it, it's always odd to not meet folks I don't think I made it out there so I started in November and I don't think I actually met anyone at the company in person until uh summer so July
0: <laughs> wow so like the whole you know in terms of onboarding to the to the job and the role the you know the the interview process board meetings all of that stuff virtual 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 correct yeah
1: it's <sighs> it, it's been fully virtual um and you know we we haven't uh we we Briefly got to get together a little bit over the summer, um, yeah. but really yeah. since then we we haven't been able to get together, and hopefully sometime soon.
0: <laughs> Please, yeah, that, that that sort of month of that month of promising sunshine, midsummer that <laughs> just went boom, shut down. Was it Delta? I think was the was the shutdown factor on oh, no, that. Was yeah. just a little frustrating. Like I want to get out again. This sucks. Uh, I mean, <laughs> hopefully, knock on a knock on a, a rock hard substance will. <laughs> We're, we're on that downslope now, but work's not going to go back into the office. It doesn't sound like you're planning on doing that with the company. Uh,
1: no, you know, we, we did a survey much like uh, many other companies did. And and I would imagine almost every company probably had very, very similar results, which is everybody appreciates flexibility. Yeah. Um, and, and that's something that we want to continue to really embrace is that we do want to be a flexible company. Uh, and that also means that if there are folks that... Uh, are wanting to go back into the office? We still have that ability, um, but the majority of the company is really comfortable working remotely. Comfortable
0: um, remotely, yeah, yeah. And it's kind of it, the nature of the work as well. I mean, you don't handle cardboard boxes, right? So it,
1: it, no, ab- absolutely. And and I think you know some of the technologies that everybody's been able to implement have certainly been helpful uh, in that. Um, I, I've been thrilled with the way everybody's been able to work together. It's it's incredible that a you know a series of all these boxes within a Microsoft Teams meeting can all collaborate as well as we can um, and so gonna, it's been really fun I was really going
0: to you, was <laughs> gonna ask you about the toolset Microsoft centric Microsoft Teams um office etc yeah yeah I talked we to a are lot Microsoft of companies. Shop. Yeah that's uh, I'm actually a Microsoft vet although way before Teams <laughs> before Teams was envisioned and it's been it's been fun watching when, when Slack kind of busted loose, the, oh, this is going to kill office. I'm like, uh, I would not count the boys in Redmond out anytime soon. They've got a <laughs> mighty, mighty foothold. Um, and, and I talked to a lot of companies that are, that are they're kind of comfortable in that ecosystem. And Teams keeps, seems to keep improving, right? Their, their Mac client kind of sucks. It's you know it's it's not
1: Mac native certainly but uh, it, it is it is very serviceable and it's yeah. it's worked really well for us in, yeah. in a lot of ways um, yeah. and and back to your comment about Slack I, I believe Slack was also one of the parties that was supposed to kill email
0: yeah yeah oh yeah 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 you're right that was that was the prediction and uh, we don't make hefty use of Slack maybe in part because I personally find it astonishingly interruptive like. I'm working. I'm thinking. I don't want bing 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 all the time, right? I'll get to you, you know, when I'm done with this task. You know, I don't. I, if you give permission for that constant interrupt, it can really chew the day up. And at the same Absolutely. time, virtual company, you, you can't stick your head. Like all the stuff we're starting to explore now, you can't stick your head in the, you know, in the office and say, "Hey, got a minute to talk about this?" So how do you conduct that so you get flow without destroying? You know, a morning's work with it with the wrong interruption.
1: It, it, it's a very interesting dynamic, and I've I've been thrilled, particularly on on the product development side of the house, where there is a lot of collaboration needed. Um, yeah. Those teams have been phenomenal, and how they communicate and how they still get those brainstorming sessions that yeah. you would generally only get in person. They they've been very deliberate and uh, setting ways to make sure those still happen.
0: Good, good, yeah. Because we're we're gonna have to we're going to have to find the ways to, to reinvent something that we were wired to do a different way. I mean, if you look at the literature, particularly the academic lit on uh, collaboration and innovation, the informal stuff is integral, if not more important than the formal stuff, but we're not having beer and coffee you know, with the people that we're, that, that we're collaborating with now. We're doing things like this. And figuring out how to how to how to allow for the, the the, the social exchange of information that underlies a lot of uh, a, a lot of innovation, it's, it's gonna be it's gonna be a heck of an experiment for a while.
1: It, absolutely, and it was one of the things that I was really concerned about making sure that we did install at the company yeah. because it, we have these roots that exist, and and some of our team members have expertise that's more deeply rooted in on-prem, some are more deeply rooted in cloud. Okay. And I wanted this healthy level of friction to exist. And I wanted some really intelligent conversations to happen. And what, what I ultimately wanted is I wanted us to take the approach of, hey, we've all been in the industry for a long time. Everyone says hindsight's 2020 We've got a lot of hindsight. Yeah. Uh, what, what would we do? What would we do to build the best of both worlds and build something today? And I, I was a little bit worried with the conditions how do you make sure those conversations still happen to the degree that you want them to happen? Yeah. Um, and I've, I've been absolutely thrilled with the, the way the team has reacted and responded Excellent. to the challenges.
0: Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. And, and, you know, people are, people are, they seem to be rising to work in a lot of ways in the sense that, you know, the, I've worked remotely for most of 20 years. So I was kind of like, welcome to my party, everybody. Um, and the reservations that, had held so many employers back from the work from home thing cuz the technological mechanisms have been around since before you know before the big bug got loose right but there was a there honestly there was a trust thing well if you work so i'm not really sure you'll get as much done and like you look and people are like yeah i will in fact guess what i'm getting more done than i was before so like Thanks for letting me off the hook. I could have told you that. I could have told you that a decade ago or something like that. And P.S. Adding an hour to the day probably doesn't suck for anybody. <laughs> no, it's it's amazing the, the time that everyone gets back uh, yeah.
1: through that. And, and also just the it's so nice that everybody's able to work on their own mental schedule. Um, yeah, good point. It, it's difficult to sit at a desk for eight hours and be sharp. <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah. And and when you're sharp is different person to person and, and, uh, you know, what refreshes you or reloads that or resets that differs person to person as well. Do you have any folks, without naming names, do you have any folks who you think would go back into a, a socialized work setting, an office, a shared office, a colo or something if they had the option?
1: I think there probably are some some folks that that prefer that, um, and I don't know that they would do it necessarily full time. I think yeah. generally like, what I sense from our surveying, yeah, it was uh, part part time, kind of on, on their schedule. Yeah, uh, which which you can't blame anyone for. I mean, that's that's the one thing that this is all introduced is flexibility.
0: I ran a I ran a virtual company in oh, two thousand five two thousand six. You know, head office was uh, Southern California, but we hired a marketing team. I stole them from a company, uh, VP and designer. And the designer thought she was itching to work from home. She was in Vermont We're in California, right? And I'm in Washington. And <laughs> it took about a month and she was going out of her mind. She was stalking everybody on Skype. The minute the West Coast lit up, she'd pounce on them, with ah, like you tell us you need the interaction. We ended up, uh, we ended up uh, paying for a desk, at a company in town, a completely unrelated company, so that she could work, but be around people. Because for her, that was just a, a better fit. She was going out of her mind, working at home. It's like, huh. And I'm going to bet, I, I my gut is there's at least a third of people for whom that's better. Some interaction, some live conversation, somebody else in the room, not just them and the cat. Um, and we'll have to start figuring out how to do that. Maybe the colo spaces will actually have a whole new lease on life uh, as we come out of this. It's certainly possible. And, and
1: remote work before the pandemic was, was certainly a lot different. Uh, yes. I, I did so for quite a while. And I, I don't recall ever being on video as, as often as I am yeah. now.
0: <laughs> yeah, we, we made this. We made, I mean, Zoom's got the, Zoom is the Kleenex of video, right? Zoom's got the, the label of it. But we made this adaptation to video. I, I've said to people before, we actually got lucky. Because having worked remotely for a long time, both the tools and the comfort with the tools wasn't there like five years ago. I'm guessing you would, you would be kind of trying to drag colleagues into, no, 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 it would really help if we can see the same thing or screen share, and then you'd burn 15 minutes setting up the stupid meeting, Right.
1: Oh, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. You would. Uh, you would. There was there was a technical hurdle to overcome, but then yeah. there was also just a comfort hurdle. It yeah. was inconvenient for those that were in the office to be on video when they were yeah. all in the office.
0: <laughs> well, and I don't really like being on camera and my hair and all that <laughs> other stuff. And then and we flip it around and now we're we're getting used to seeing each other's more personal space. I mean, you're are you in a home office right now? I am, yeah. I love the map behind you. Those of you who are <laughs> listening, he's got a great world map behind him. Yeah, I mean, I'm in my home office as well. And I've talked, the, the agenda I was talking with yesterday from Portugal. I, I think he was in a living room or something like that. You know, the, like the setting behind him wasn't really office And we're all kind of like, great, <laughs> like that's very human. Like, yes, you have a life. Yes, you have kids or pets or whatever else. This is a good thing, <laughs> right? Nice to connect you with that.
1: We get to embrace the chaos, which is uh, yeah. it has been a really fun thing. And it's, it's been really a strong relationship building exercise, too.
0: Nice. Nice. I was gonna, I was going to ask you if that worked out. And have you seen shift in relationships that were that, they were already established, but they were in the office only. And now, you know, this enough of, of this remoted uh, collaboration, they start to get to know each other and gel in a different way.
1: Absolutely, the the way people work together has has changed and evolved a lot. And in a lot of ways, it's improved.
0: Yeah, in a lot of ways, it's improved. Agreed. And and we'll you know we'll 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 figure, we'll have to figure this out because I like I said I don't see, uh, I don't see stuffing the uh, thing back into the bottle. Um, it, certainly for for a lot of jobs like the kind of jobs that people at your company are going to have, you know, if you said. Must work from the office to be like, oh crap, everybody left. Why? Because they could get a gig somewhere else. You know, I I know a lot
1: of companies uh, get very eager when they see a large company require everybody to go back to the office because they know that that is a recruiting avenue for them now.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And large companies that I know some of them are on the fence, like Apple's fence sitting, Google's fence sitting. I don't know quite know about Amazon, but I like my sense for some of the like some of the marquee companies that are easy to name is they're like, Oh, gee, we're not sure if this is gonna work and I'm thinking, Whoo <laughs> You're gonna have some very hard decisions to make. That, absolutely.
1: Yeah, Um, I I don't envy those folks making those decisions because uh, being a small, agile company, it it certainly is a lot easier to respond and adapt to the circumstances. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And and is that a function of scale? Like, why would a big company have a different problem with that adaptation? I mean, leaving aside jobs that require physically being in a place to do something, um, you know, a a purely digital org, a a Google, for example, I think they'd have to figure out they're going to have to work this way.
1: It's a large ship to, to reverse course on.
0: <laughs> it is, it is. Microsoft seems to be already on, on board. I'm, I, I I can't pinpoint the exact quote, but my sense is they're they're already in the, this is the way that people are going to work. We'll deal with it. Yeah. Once some office I, I think it's, in Redmond? <laughs> <laughs> you know,
1: I, I think it's an intelligent way to respond to it. I, I think that the thing that this has forced us all to do is something that we should have all been doing a lot sooner, but that's really... Yeah. Learning how people want to work. Everybody wants to work a little bit more differently. And I think we're starting to embrace those nuances and those differences within people now.
0: And find the gain out of it as well, right? Uh, You know, less less commute time or work, you know, if you're sharp in the morning, do X in the morning kind of thing. I I, I would like to see, and I mean, now we're going way far afield from email, but I, I would like to see a less jury rigged approach to the tools for remote collaboration. I mean, I'm sitting here, I'm sitting here on a Mac, you're sitting probably in a Windows box. Um, you're probably looking at a, a monitor that was originally designed for, you know, documents, spreadsheets, code, whatever, right? Um, is it big enough really for us to have a face-to-face conversation? You're looking slightly down because of the, <laughs> right, because of the configuration yeah. of, is it a note, like notebook screen? Well, no, I'm I'm MacBook Pro, so MacBook I'm, Pro. I'm... okay, cool, cool. Like, and I, I'm I'm a geek on this stuff, and as I said, I've worked remotely for a long time, so I finally ended up with second monitor above the primary monitor, <laughs> and camera on a stand that goes up, so I can I can actually see you and look into the camera. But we're jury rigging this stuff, you know. I'm getting parts off of Amazon, and you know, well, what if the camera's here? Will that work? And oh, the mic there, that worked. And realistically. I'd like a screen about 60 inches wide. So if I were talking to you, you're pretty darn close to life size. And maybe, yeah. we'll, maybe we'll start to see less of the, my PC can do this as well on collaboration and more of a how do we really make shared space so that we can be together and it's digital.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I do think that that's going to be the next evolution of this. Um, and I, I know our product development team. One of the things that that they do look into is is kind of these virtual whiteboarding type of yeah tools. yeah
0: Mira and so on. Yeah, they're cool, aren't they? It's
1: really cool. <laughs> I mean, I just it, imagine this. Just even a few years ago, I, yeah. I don't think anyone could have imagined where this would all go. Yeah. Not yeah. not pandemic, just but I mean, some of the, the, work the technical nuances.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and you know the the, the room for the scribble, the hand, the visual—you know, there's a whiteboard behind me. If you're listening to this, and and like, I don't think so well without a whiteboard kind of a thing. But to be able to share it, see it, modify it, mark it up—that um, matters in collaboration. It does a lot. Yeah. No, absolutely. I I was uh there was a there was a platform. You know the name Ray Ozzie. I don't know. Ray Ozzie was the architect uh, guy behind Lotus Notes. And then he eventually became CTO of Microsoft for a while. Like, just like brilliant, world-class developer way up here. He spent a couple of years working on a platform. Gosh, I think it was called Groove. And it was a peer-to-peer uh, work and collaboration platform. Microsoft eventually when they, they bought Groove, I think, to get Ray Ozzy there. But I was on a session once where... A handful of us were using Groove. We didn't work at the same company, and there was a there was a tool for doing mind mapping in Groove, and we started down a rabbit hole of talking about something. But we were everyone was mind mapping on the fly to keep track of the conversation, and it was fascinating. One guy went off in this direction building the tree. Another guy went off in this direction building the tree, and we're all looking at this thing going growing in these different directions at once. We're like that is flipping fascinating. It's like no one had control of the marker; everyone had yeah. their own, and their contribution was. It was much more like jazz, you know. It was much more like, "Oh, you're doing that? Let me jump over there and connect that to this." Like, and I've never seen, I've never seen a tool that does that much real-time free flow since. But I hope someone will listen and goes, "Oh, good idea. Let's go build that." Because it was, it was <laughs> unbelievable to see live that someone's thinking in a different direction, but they didn't have the constraint of, you know, Matthew's got the marker that we're used to. It, absolutely.
1: Well, and, and I mean, to to bring us into the, the email world and that comparison, which I love, is it's really starting to work in concert with all the other tools that exist out there. Yeah. Um, doing it the exact same way you described, where one thing ends and another picks up, there's a seamless transition.
0: Yeah, yeah. Where do you think, you know, where do you think email fits like narrowed down from email marketing for a second in the world of work where email was such a primary tool of communication and record and even collaboration and not necessarily good at all those jobs equally where's it going to fit as we keep evolving the world of work
1: it's it, it it has a lot of staying power. Uh, I do believe that because I, I think every every time people have written off email and, and said <laughs> that it's dying, whether commercially or in business yeah. uh, life, it, it's never it's never taken a hit. Yeah. <laughs> it, yeah. it continues to grow. To grow. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't see that changing. I, I, I really don't. I, I think even even though we use Teams for a lot of our interoffice communications, uh, we still use email for the key things. Uh, we still use email to communicate with customers and, and prospects. Yes. yes. Um, it, those use cases, I, I don't see subsiding at any
0: point, not in the near term anyway. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I I tend to agree. And especially when you leave the company boundary. Yeah. Right. Like, like what it's the only free range. I can reach out to you. You can reach out to me. We don't have to integrate, set up permissions, any of that crap. It's just like, I'll send you an email.
1: Oh, look, good idea. <laughs> you know, it's it's decentralized nature makes it so interesting. Nobody yeah. owns the email channel. And yeah, I think that's true. what's so fantastic about it. And when I you think. look at all these omni-channel providers, I don't think that's something they fully understand or have embraced yet.
0: Yeah, agreed. I, I have some reservations about the role that the really dominant inbox providers are starting to play. I, I, I'm I not entirely nuts about $1.6 you know, Gmail inboxes. I'm not entirely nuts about deliverability being, oh, geez, I got in the promotions tab. Like, um, I'm sorry, but who put them in charge of the channel? What do you think? It's an interesting dynamic.
1: Um, I I think there's a lot of give and take to it. And I think if we can align on all of us agreeing that the end user is who we are all trying to delight, (laughs) I think that helps make those conversations a lot easier. I think it starts us off. um, You know, I, I certainly know a few of the mailbox providers they're keen to work with marketers. Um, you know, there, there is an understanding that we do have a shared interest here. We want email to be a really pleasant experience for the end user, yeah. because if it's, if it's a terrible experience for the end user, that's the only thing that can really kill email.
0: Yeah, yeah, fair enough. What do you, what's your perspective on, on, on Apple's, you know, shift in handling the signal back MPP opens in privacy? It's interesting. It certainly puts a greater reliance on other data
1: sources. I, I think opens were always a, a really interesting signal, both from the the marketer and deliverability practitioner perspective. Uh, so to have that signal nullified a little bit, um, and I wouldn't say that it's rendered useless because I do still think it's a, a strong directional signal. Mm-hmm. Um, but to have that change take place, we we all had to adapt. Um, and it's it's something that was probably long overdue anyway. Um, yeah, it, we, yeah. we have a, a scoring product. So we, we look at mail streams and we score them relative to uh, other mail streams. Mm-hmm. And I believe there's 36 data inputs that go into it. So opens was one of them. Okay. Um, and does it remain one of them? It does. It just has changed how it's used. So we look nice. at it more as a directional indicator uh, versus kind of a, a forensic actionable indicator. Um, so it's, it's caused us all as, as an email community to think about things a little bit differently. Um, but I think some of that's overdue. I I do think that some of us were probably a little bit too reliant on engagement data. Um, (laughs) I I think this has forced us to to think a little bit more outside the box and go a little bit deeper into the funnel when we're looking at conversion data uh, for end users.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, well, well, well put it, it really has been a, um, kind of a woof. wake up, wake up, lots of conversations, lots of reevaluation. Um, you know, we're, we're, I have two perspectives on the MPP thing. One, and I said this tartly a few times, if email marketers had made more interesting use of the content capability in email, it, it wouldn't have necessarily been such an easy move. If, if, uh, Pixels were replaced with content that consumer could see that was of use to them. Apple might have considered whether or not that was the best thing to do. But, you know, 98% of email, no, no, no real-time content, nothing particularly interesting visually, and the pixels really there for the marketer, not the consumer, not the end user.
1: Yeah, I, I think there's certainly some truth to that. And I, I, one of the things that we've really seen throughout the past decade within email is a lot of the things that everyone wants to do, there just isn't a technical capability to do it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I love tackling that problem from the email delivery perspective. It's <laughs> is just talking about if, if you could envision a world where your email infrastructure could work for you in the most flexible way possible and is capable of fulfilling anything you could potentially think of, mm-hmm. would you want to do that?
0: Yeah, okay, wow. I love, I, 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 it's very clear that this is your space. It's like, it's almost every word. It's like, ah, this guy gets this space and knows it (laughs) sounds like you got a whole team lined up behind that, which is awesome. Where do you, uh, where do you see socket labs in say a year or two? Like what do you think might be different by then? Well, it's, it's going to be interesting because there are a lot of external variables that are happening
1: within the industry that are influencing a lot of things. Uh, and, and one of the things that we've really seen is, uh, it, we're one of the few email companies left in the email infrastructure space. I think we might be the only, um, wow. or at least the largest independent email sending company out there, um, because you, you look at the competitive landscape and how it's changed. It, it started with SparkPost. Yeah, yeah. And SparkPost gets acquired by MessageBird, an SMS company. And then you have, uh, well, Same I guess idea. even before that, you had SendGrid get acquired by Twilio, an SMS yep. company. Yep. And then Mail uh, you had Mailgun uh, and yep. Cinch, an SMS company. Um, and, and so there's an interesting omni-channel space. And so the, the thing that I really keep my eye on and what I'm really curious to see how it'll all play out is what is going to happen with these omni-channel infrastructure providers. Um, so you got your omni-channel infrastructure providers and Twilio and, and Cinch uh, and MessageBird. It, you know, the, the first thing that I notice is, okay, they aren't email companies anymore. So it, it, it seems unlikely that they're going to invest heavily in email. Uh, I certainly don't think email innovation innovation of making the pipe more intelligent is probably on their radar. Um, and and I, I don't blame them. They're gigantic companies with huge uh, revenue targets to, to adhere to. Uh, are they going to start to go back in the MarTech stack? So are they going to take their focus where they're kind of in this email channel delivery and... Omni channel delivery space, are they going to start to get into uh-huh. automation yeah. and then into CDP type of uh, territory? And I think if you read the signals that are happening right now, it's, it's kind of already starting. Um, you know, with, with Twilio, they've acquired segments, so they have a CDP. Yes. They've released Twilio Engage, which is effectively a marketing automation platform. Yeah. So I, I think what you're seeing is you're seeing the omni-channel providers really tr- start to compete with the giant marketing clouds and, and kind of the Gen 2 marketing clouds that mm-hmm. exist out there. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's a land grab um, that, that they're all participating in. So it's it's going to present some really interesting conversations because they're competing with their customers
0: in a lot of these cases. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That makes that actually makes a ton of sense. And send send grid is the one that for, for something I've worked enough with Twilio pre and post send grid to have have something to map what you just said onto. Yeah. That makes a makes a ton of sense. Puts you guys in an interesting strategic position because instead of you're not trying to go up the stack, you're trying to go down and deeper at the base of the thing.
1: You know, what we're trying to do is that the stack has stopped here. We're trying to see if it can go out here. You know, we're we're starting to think about, okay, well, email delivery has always been, I mean, eventually what happened with it is it kind of got commoditized uh, and everybody yeah, just agreed that, hey, what do you want out of your piping? Well, you want it to be cheap and you want it to scale and you want it to be reliable. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well do you want it to perform in ways that you didn't envision it would be possible to perform in yeah. because that's really where I think the magic starts to happen is when you start to go farther, right in that stack and you start to look at, okay, well, what are the opportunities to send email better and smarter?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I, I, I see a, I see a bit of an analogy to the real time content niche that campaign genius plays in, in that the big company, big guest company in that space um, movable Inc is, you know, I, I read their homepage almost every day. I'm not dumb, um, <laughs> right? And <laughs> it's starting to be less about email and more about all sorts of content, text, et cetera, et cetera. It totally makes sense as a move, but it means that they're less focused on, dedicated to exploring what's what's this channel all about. And there seems to be some sizzle on SMS, MMS right now, I'm, I'm not sure there's a stake there in the long run. because um, if I got a lot of marketing messages on my phone, I, my head would pop off. Like, don't don't do that to me, please. What do you think?
1: It's interesting because SMS is such a difficult concept to understand as, as somebody who's rooted in email. Um, it's just it, it's such an interesting and so much more intrusive and the margin of error is so much lower. Um, but, you know, from the omni-channel perspective, its its unitary economics are very favorable. It costs a lot more to send an SMS than it does to send an email.
0: Yes, it does. Uh,
1: and, and so I, I do think that that's why it's the SMS companies that have been buying the email companies to this yeah. point. Yeah. Um, there, there's yeah. certainly some economics that work out in their favor.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: but I, I agree. I, I don't think we know the long-term sustainability
0: of that. Yeah, yeah. And, and we don't know what, the folks in control of the end platform might decide to do with that, right? If, if, if Apple decided to change something about the handling of messages that land in their SMS client, their MMS client, like nobody's going to get to say boo about it. Like, oh, you decided to do that. I guess we're going to have to go along. We don't have a choice.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and
0: and MMS
1: SMS, you're you're dealing with such a more strongly regulated channel, um, where yeah. where email is decentralized. <laughs> we're yeah. we're talking about yeah. something that is is quite the opposite. Um, yes. So it's yes. it's a very interesting channel, and I do think that a lot of what the marketing automation providers are doing, particularly kind of the the Gen two marketing clouds, what I call them, is yeah. you know your Iterables and brazes and clavios mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, and blue cores of the world, it, yeah. they're getting so good with this cross-channel orchestration, and it's so interesting to see. Um, it, just to see, you know, how how you can try to choose right channel at the right time with the right message. Yeah, um, there are a lot of advancements that have been made, so it's certainly an exciting space. Um, but you know, from our perspective, it, the
0: thing that still gets left behind is yes. what do you do to make the email channel more effective? <laughs> well, one head of one of the bigger email marketing agencies out there commented on a call a month or two ago. He said, if you want, your, if you want to grow the email channel, uh, let them try some SMS campaigns because they'll come running back once they see the bill. Because um, yeah, ex- at, vol- at scale, that's an expensive hobby, guys. I know, I know you get 99% opens or something like that, but mama mia, you're paying for that attention in a very concrete way. It, absolutely, and it's it's why email is still really the
1: horsepower of the marketers tech stack. Yeah,
0: um, yeah. I, I
1: mean, when you look at all the channels, the ROI on email is, is still tops. Um, tops, yeah,
0: yeah, hands it, down. I also I also think more. I think messaging is never going to unfragment either. I mean, it's easy to talk SMS, MMS, but there's there's at least two uh, endpoints that behave differently there and. WhatsApp, WeChat, like you can start going down the list of other messaging channels and it's, it's it, it, there is not a standard. Whereas when we're talking about email, there is. Yeah. Oh, uh,
1: absolutely. There, There is there is a standard, um, you know, the, the way people send email has, has been relatively unchanged for a while now. A while ago. Um, yeah. Yeah, and, and so I, I think it's it, it's just interesting to see a channel that's been around as long as email has and generates the ROI that it generates, which is outstandingly high, Yeah. Um, yet I would still probably call it a channel that hasn't been fully optimized. Um, I, I do still think there's a lot of room for optimization within uh, email, and uh, I, I certainly understand uh, the, the movement towards omni-channel, and I certainly understand what the, the market conditions are permitting there, but boy, there's still a lot left to do in email. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, that's a that's a good concluding sentence right there. Nicely <laughs> nicely wrapped up. Uh if someone's intrigued by what you're saying, which I'm sure they will be, best place for them to hunt down Socket Labs is at socketlabs.com. It is indeed. Yes. Well, that's uh that's cool. Well, thank you Tim for making the time. It's been a I knew it would be a great conversation. I knew we'd go down some rabbit holes, but uh, it was good. No, I appreciate it likewise. Thank you cool. for having me. We'll wrap it up. My guest has been Tim Moore, CEO of Socket Labs. Thanks. We're out.